Senator Kramer, welcome back to Point of View. Always great to see you. Lots to discuss. Let's start here. Many people are wondering, hey, am I going to get my $1,400 direct payment? And if so, when? So I think you're going to get your $1,400 direct payment um, when I'm not certain, but I don't think it'll be too terribly far from now. The the bill that passed the House um, with bipartisan opposition, uh, only partisan support, uh, includes the $1,400 uh, stimulus payments to individuals. Uh, it's now in the Senate. I think we're going to, we may take it up um, later today. We may be able to vote on um, moving forward. If not, it'll be tomorrow. Uh, there's some There's some hang up right now for some reason. I think part of it, Chris, is that we've been insisting on targeting those $1,400 payments um, to, to people based on need, not so much just throwing it out you know, at everybody. Um, there's some other things that, that Democrats are learning about the bill along with us uh, that aren't as satisfactory as they thought, like the $350 billion for states. Um, it actually doesn't go to a lot of Democrat members' states. And so, you know, th th we're, we're still working it. But I think we're going to get to this bill this week, and we'll start amending it, you know, sometime tomorrow, late tomorrow, maybe Friday, maybe Saturday, maybe all weekend long, trying to make it a better bill. But at some point within the next you know, within the next several days, it will pass the Senate on most likely a 50 to 50 vote with Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote. And then the, you know, the, the checks or the cards or the direct deposits will happen shortly after that. So some Democrat senators are now suggesting that we do like Canada is and that they say, hey, we should be getting, giving out $2,000 direct payments every month until this COVID thing is over. Would you support that? Absolutely not. I mean, there are already enough incentives for people to not go to work and enough incentives for, for places not to open. Let me just give you an example. Th this same package includes, we're going back to now, these $400 a week supplements to um, unemployment insurance benefits. So again, $400 a week. And by the way, this is all the way through August. So that means if you're getting $400 plus, say, $300 or $400, whatever your your state pays, um, you have all the incentive you need to not go to work, stay home. And um, that means your employer can't reopen because they can't get workforce back. Um, and on top of that, there's $350 billion in this bill for states, mainly blue states that were poorly run and chose not to reopen so, their economies. Senator, I got to ask you, because and this is a Tough question, but what's the game plan here? And I asked in this context, you're saying, hey, Chris, we're incentivizing people to stay home. We're incentivizing states now that had the highest unemployment rates to get more funding out of this new formula that the House has created. So yeah, when, I, when, when I did a piece yesterday, if you look at the states that are going to get the most, California, New Jersey, New York, New Jersey, New York have the highest COVID death rates in the country. So, I mean, if they were saving lives, I could see, okay, maybe we can have that argument, but they're not. And now we're, we're making kids stay at home. I don't know if you've seen the latest on this, but there's some data out there that we've seen almost a 100% increase in mental health issues within our kids sure. not going to school. So tough question, but big picture. What are they trying to accomplish here? Here's what I think they're trying to accomplish. And Chris, I've not said this uh, yet to a reporter, at least not on the record, but this is what I believe part of it is. They see that our economy is reopening. As the vaccines go out, now there's three successful vaccines, um, you know, the good distribution. Uh, as the vaccines go out and herd immunity kicks in, economies are reopened, jobs are, you know, brought back online. They want to make sure that they can say they did something, that Joe Biden actually did something that helps, um, you know, 
fight the the vax, fight the virus and uh, get the economy going again because we're going to see a five six percent GDP growth I think in the next quarter maybe in the first quarter and if they don't have something to show for what they you know that they did something they're not able to take credit for it I think it's as brazen as that. All right, so I got to ask you this as well, because one of the things you haven't mentioned about this bill is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's still a trillion dollars that hasn't been spent from the previous COVID relief package. Scott Hennon retweeted our good friend Scott Mayo saying, hey, Senator Kevin Kramer, help. He's breaking down some numbers here about, hey, if we give out $2,000 each, um, there's still $1.239 trillion that you know hasn't been necessarily spoken for. There's a lot of money flooding the system. One, where is it? And two, how concerned are you about inflation? Uh, I'm well. Okay, those are two big, really, really big questions, and lots of things in between them. I'm very concerned about inflation. We'll get to that if you'd like. But with regard to where's that money and why hasn't not been spent? Not let, let's face it. Not every program's you know the same. So if you're talking about paycheck protection program, for example, some of that money's literally in a pipeline, so it's not been loaned out. Uh, or borrowed from somebody, but it's in the process of that happening. So some of those are legitimate, but just let's take schools as an example. You know, just a few weeks ago, well, now two months ago, at the end of December, we when we passed the $900 billion package, um, something like $62.8 billion was was for um, schools, and only about $4 billion of that has been spent by schools. And this bill has a whole bunch more billion dollars for schools, schools that aren't opening, yeah. uh, that aren't teaching our kids. Uh, it's, it's a bailout to the teachers unions and it's just tragic. And there's a lot of that, Chris. So it's a roughly trillion dollars that has been previously allocated or appropriated, but not yet spent. And like I said, in some cases, it may make some sense. In most cases, it does not. Well, it, it's really hard to sit here and stomach the center because I know a lot of people right now that are struggling. We've had this conversation with you before and to hear all these, I would, for lack of a better term, call them slush funds with a bunch of money flowing around and it's not getting into some parents or people's pockets. It's just, it's tough. I want to go yeah, ahead. Because I want to make a point here because you and I are having a very important discussion right now. I just got off the radio with Tony Perkins. W one of our problems is this package is overwhelmingly supported by most of the American people. Maybe not in North Dakota where we're a little bit brighter and a little bit more, you know, have, have a little bit broader minds, but and, and knowledgeable and have a relationship where your members talk to you. But in many places across the country, they overwhelmingly support this because of your first question, where's my $1,400 check? What they don't know is that 91% of this COVID relief package has nothing to do with COVID, has nothing to do with COVID. In fact, a lot of this money won't even be spent in the next year or two. It's for the out years. Well, COVID's just about done, folks. It's just about done. So it's important we have these discussions so that people like North Dakotans and Minnesotans are well-informed. Well, and that's why my follow-up question initially was, hey, do you support the $2,000 a month? Because that's such an easy sell politically, right? And you said, absolutely not. I'm like, okay, I get it. But boy, politically, they're going to sell that all day long. Let's let's move on to this, sir, because this just came out recently. I want to see if you've got any intel on here. Then we're going to get to an election integrity. But um, police warn of a possible militia group attack on the U.S. Capitol tomorrow. The police force that guards the U.S. Capitol said on Wednesday it's got some intelligence now pointing to a possible plot by a militia group to breach the building on Thursday. There's some groups out there that apparently think President Trump still has a chance. Just if you, do you have any intel, any insight on what is being re referenced there as far as a possible attack tomorrow? I do, Chris. I mean, uh, and when I say intel, it's not like it's real top secret intel, obviously. And now you're starting to see some of this 
come out and it should come out because the best deterrent to something like that is for people to know that we're, that the Capitol Police and guards members that are here are prepared for something like that. But um, yeah, you, I think you've nailed it. You know pretty much what I know at this point. And we've known it for some time that there are people that have been supposedly prophets prophesying that, you know, Donald Trump's going to, you know, be able to be reinstated to the presidency in, you know, early March or March, sometime between March 4th and March 6th. And some people are, seem to be utilizing that, using that as a, as a reason to, to, you know, to prepare their militia. It's all nonsense in, in my view, but you can't take these threats lightly. I don't know that there's a, a super serious, uh, imminent type of a threat, but um, so you have to take it somewhat seriously for sure and be prepared for it for sure. But I don't believe that it's going to happen. And I think part of the reason it's not going to happen is because it's known about and it's, it's being publicized. All right. I mean, plus it feels from what I hear from some people in DC, it feels like a military zone. So hopefully you guys are well protected. Um, I made a mistake, so I should have asked you this initially, but so are you going to vote yay or nay on this COVID relief package in the Senate? Well, it's hard for me to see how it can possibly get good enough for me to be That's for it. If you, let me put it this way. If they would bring the part of the bill that the, the 9% that's COVID you know, related, like uh, money to pay for getting the vaccines out faster in more, you know, faster quantities. And, and uh, now that we have three of them and get into more people quicker and get things reopened um, more for our frontline workers, you know, more for um, the, the logistics support, the national guard support in several States, including North Dakota, I think you'd get a hundred senators to vote for it. But it's the other 91%. And, the, and we might not even agree on all the 9%, but, but <laughs> get 100 people to vote for it. But it's hard to imagine why we would spend another $2 trillion of money into the future when we've already spent you know, over $5 trillion. That's with a T, Chris. All, by the way, on five different bipartisan negotiated common sense. Some people might not call it common sense, but at least negotiated bipartisan bills. On this one, they never even consulted Republicans. Never a consultation. Well, is that fair? Because Joe Biden had Mitt Romney and Susan Collins, some of the people at the White House. Oh, good. That's a great point. So he didn't have them at the White House. They asked for a meeting with him, and 10 of them went over to suggest a better approach. They brought up their $600 billion, just a minor $600 billion bill. I remember when that was a lot of money, Chris. Um, yeah. $600 billion bill. He said, we'll consider it. And the next day they announced that that they were going to do $2 trillion and they were going to jam it down the Republicans' throats through the reconciliation process. So he gave it no no consideration whatsoever. But right. I guess they had a nice meeting. I got I got to ask you about this, sir, because I know that you've got a bill that you're co-sponsoring. We did get a question about election integrity um, the first time that we've heard. And, and this was actually the top issue at uh, CPAC. Some call it TPAC was election integrity. And then the first time today we hear from Vice President Mike Pence saying election integrity is a national imperative. I want to share with you just a quick excerpt from this uh, from his op-ed here, and then we can talk more about your co-sponsored bill as well. But he said, hey, when he was presiding over this joint Congress certifying the Electoral College results, I pledged to ensure that all objections properly raised under the Electoral Count Act would be given a full hearing before Congress and the American people. Can that still happen, and what are you going to do about it? Sure. So great question. And I think the vice president is exactly right. The bill that, that um, I helped introduce this week um, with, uh, with the, the new senator from, um, from Tennessee, Bill Haggerty, 
is a is a it's one that even I hesitated a little bit on, Chris, because I, as you know, I really worry about federalism, and I really care that states have what they need and that they have the uh, say that they should have over elections. But it basically just supports the Constitution, and that is it ensures that. Any that election officers, whoever they might be, whether they're secretaries of state or some bureau underneath the secretary of state or some commission in a state, that they don't mess with election law, that only so, the legislature of these states can pass new election laws. And, and it's as simple as that. So, sir, that, that leads me to my very next question. Then why in the world, and you look at, he got three Supreme Court justices, meaning President Donald Trump. Why didn't SCOTUS take up any of these possible hearings, cases? Well, I don't know why they didn't, um, Chris, because I haven't talked to any of them, but I have read some some cases. And I understand why they maybe didn't take up some of them. But yes. I would submit to you that one of the best written uh, dissenting opinions was in the Pennsylvania case. And the, the, the opinion came from Clarence Thomas and, and Antonin Scalia, or um, not Scalia, obviously, Alito, um, uh, Justice Alito joined him in that, and he wrote also a dissent. And um, Neil Gorsuch joined their dissent without writing a, an opinion. But his dissenting opinion was very good. And basically, it has to do with what's called cert. Cert is, um, you know, the court taking a case uh, and then and giving some direction going forward. Uh, while they're right that that the the Pennsylvania lawsuit, even if it was successful, wouldn't have changed the outcome. Therefore, it was moot in terms of its its you know, um, going backwards and, and uh, changing the election, but it's not moot in terms of its cert, if you will, and giving some instruction going forward. I was disappointed that a couple of more of the conservatives didn't take that case up. Yeah. Um, I think the mootness of it was their determining factor. I can't speak for them, but it was disappointing. But there are still are some open cases in their state cases. There's one in Arizona that's that I think just had a hearing. That's a pretty serious case, and and I think you know I call what I what I call it what, what happened. I call it legal theft. I don't call it you know uh, illegitimate or illegal. But we've got to be careful at the state level, and these legislatures have to shore up their own laws to make sure that what happened in this last election, and that what I'm talking about what, what happened was the um, this changing of election laws by people other than state legislatures. Exactly. And, and of course, the, the across-the-board vote-by-mail, universal vote-by-mail and universal uh, you know, registration, and the things that are in what's called H.R. 1, a bill that the House is passing, to uh, really federalize our election laws is... is grossly inappropriate. Uh, quickly, sir, then I want to move on to some other topics. Uh, President Trump said at CPAC, hey, we should just have a, a single day of voting in America. Now, if you're military, you have to do absentee. That's fine, but it should just be one day. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that, Chris, with some exceptions, and he cited some of them. Re remember, in, in, in North Dakota, when I was a young state party chairman, we had something like 1,200 voting precincts. Every township had a voting uh, site. And um, and so you had to vote on election day, but if you couldn't have voted on election day, you needed an absentee ballot. And in North Dakota, some people are away on election day. They've already moved south. Or if you're military, you're obviously, you might be stationed somewhere else or for whatever reason. And and I liked that. Now, North Dakota was an early state in adapting vote by mail, and it became pretty universal in about half of our states, if not more. And uh, and that comes with a lot of concern, obviously. 
And so anyway, I think it's reasonable to expect that we have one voting day. It's it's a patriotic duty. I think employers ought to give that day to, to their employees if they need it. If they need an hour or two other than their lunch hour uh, to go vote, they ought to, they ought to do that. Yeah. And we ought to get back to the good old-fashioned way of voting because it matters. Our founders created an election day on purpose, not an election month or an election two months, but an election day. Senator, I got to ask you about this. As you know, immigration, very, very hot topic. Uh, some recent yeah. news here coming out of Brownsville, Texas, where 6% of some immigrants that came across the border, 108 of them, tested positive for COVID. But Brownsville says they have no authority to prevent them from traveling anywhere in the U.S. So essentially, these people then are jumping on other buses with healthy people and traveling all across America just your reaction to this. What's going on? Well, listen, what what the um, president did in his executive order on immigration, when he wiped out all of the, the good things that the Trump administration did, um, he basically said to the cartels and to the coyotes who take unaccompanied children across um, or, or, or lend them or rent them to, to uh, adults so that they can use them to get across our border. He basically said, we're back open for business. Don't come quite yet because we haven't replaced the executive orders um, that we undid with my executive order. But, but get ready and come on across the border and don't worry about all those COVID cases you're going to catch. There are certain areas in, 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 the, in the route, remember, from Central America through Mexico, there are areas that are, you know, full of COVID cases. There's, there's no way they're going to come through that without that. He also eliminated, by the way, he eliminated the relationship that was created with those three triangular states yes. in the northern part of Central America. He eliminated the weight in Mexico rule. Now, you talk about something that made perfect sense. The weight in Mexico rule was what allowed the Mexican government to participate with us in keeping people who wanted to cross in Mexico until their day when they could cross and have a hearing rather than, than having the catch and release program that we had before, which meant, you know, get a child, come across the border. We'll release you into the interior of the country. You can go to places like North Dakota and we'll, we'll let you know when your court date is that you're never right. going to show up. These are the common sense things that president Trump did. They undid them. And now they're, Basically, we're, we're open for business again for all the illegal immigration you can imagine. And a couple of things I want to touch on there. One is that's so hard to, to stomach this because you continually hear that, look, black people and black Americans have got a higher propensity for COVID. The death rates are higher in those demographics. And yet here we are having a situation where you've got uh, people from Mexico coming across. I don't know where they're getting COVID, but the fact they've got it now, it just it doesn't make sense from that standpoint. Now, to back up what you just said, I don't know if you've seen the latest stats here, Senator, but. Uh, fiscal year 19, we had about 80,000 unaccompanied uh, immigrant children. Fiscal year 2020, 33, it's projected, according to Axios, 117,000 unaccompanied children in 2021 fiscal year. That breaks my heart because you and I both know what these coyotes are doing to these little kids. Well, and the statistic bears, it's really is an important statistic, an important illustration you just showed, because from remember 2019 was when the big caravans came and they, they crossed over while we were getting a handle on it. And the president changed some of these rules. I just talked about catch and release relationship with Mexico officials to hold people in Mexico. And, and, and by the way, this applies to people from Central America, not Mexicans and not Canadians. It's a, it's a sort of funny quirk in our, in our policies. But um, when, when, when President um, 
Trump implemented those. That's when you saw that big drop. And then now with President Biden doing away with those rules, allowing everybody and anybody to come across with children, you're exactly right. It's just created the incentive for the coyotes. And by the way, we learned today of some people that have actually purchased children. Mothers have sold their children to these immigrants so that they can cross the border. And and isn't it interesting, too, that, by the way, the, the quote, cages that the Trump administration was using to house people at the border are now being used by the Biden administration, and they're perfectly fine. So I want, I want to speak to something, Senator, because we continually hear from some people, um, I'm going to say this as PC as I can, that America is not the greatest country in the world. Let me, let me put it that way. And yet, as you just mentioned, and you and I both know this, you have parents selling their kids just to get to America. There was a story, uh, I think it was in uh, Holtville, California. They had 25 people coming from Mexico. They were in a Ford expedition, a lot of them young. We lost 13 of those people. I guess just your, your, your comments on that, please. Well, these tragedies are exactly what I'm talking about. And these, these are obviously some pretty gross examples of, um, of the problem. But anybody that thinks there's some humanitarian gain in doing what, what's being done is not paying attention. They're simply not paying attention. Yeah. When you have a well-organized legal immigration system that welcomes people into our country in an orderly fashion, you have a far more humanitarian treatment of, of the, those people, of, the, of yeah. the immigrants coming across and their families. Chris, to, to somehow suggest that, that it's hum, humane to do what the Biden administration is doing, and that is to do what the Obama administration was doing, is just plain old hypocrisy. It simply is not. And I don't know what their motive is in doing what they're doing, but it's not humane. I, I think you do. You might just not want to say. So let, let's, let's leave it at that. All right, let's move on to energy, sir. I mean, it is unbelievable what's happening in the energy world right now. And I want to touch on first, uh, the American Petroleum Institute is talking about potentially supporting a carbon tax. Talk to us about what does that mean for North Dakota energy, but also what does it mean for North Dakota egg producers? Well, thanks for bringing in the egg producers because agriculture producers are big users, obviously, of uh, of carbon based products, not not just the fuel. And there's a lot of fuel to plant a crop, to you know till a field, to uh, to harvest it, to dry it, to ship it. Um, to, to process it. Uh, obviously, a lot of energy is used in that process, but even the inputs themselves <laughs> that, that agriculture uses. So here's what it does. A carbon tax, a pricing of carbon for its external costs or societal costs, as they call it, means that you add to the price of everything, not just carbon, because carbon energy is used in the value chain of everything that we grow, produce, manufacture, buy, sell, ship, the, the value chain in our, in our society, and really in any developed system, is carbon, very carbon intense. So that means you add the, to the cost of everything. And as I like to explain it, that means if you make $5,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $500,000 a year, $5 million a year, if you have to put gasoline in your tank, it costs the same. So that means it has a disproportionate negative impact on people on fixed incomes. Energy costs money. It's a big part of, of our of our daily you know consumption. Yeah. And that's the same with a loaf of bread. Uh, if you're you know what, whatever it is you're doing, buying, purchasing, that, selling, it adds to the cost and disproportionately hurts people in the lower income scale. 
Senator, that's what concerns me. You look at what they're doing with some of these energy policies, which is going to raise prices and all the money flooding into the system from. So you sure you don't want to support these two thousand dollar monthly checks? I'm kidding. Let, let me let me ask you this, because I think this is stunning. And again, I want to bring this back to North Dakota here. But some interesting information. Chevron may not be an oil first company in 2040, the CEO says. Uh, BP says they're going to take a different stance. The oil giant thinks that oil demand may have peaked in 2019, plans to slash its oil and gas production by 40% by 2030. What does this mean for the Bakken? So this is really an important point, Chris, because it get, kind of gets back to the last question. That is why, why you didn't ask it this way, but why in the world is the American Petroleum Institution considering supporting pricing of, of carbon? It's because large companies like BP and Chevron are the ones that can withstand this. They're the they're the companies that'll pass those costs on, and they'll they'll look for ways to get around it. They'll look for other areas to invest in, and this is why it's so devastating to places like the Bakken, and and why I think independent producers uh, like the Bakken has, and the Bakken has some large large companies as well. But those large companies are going to invest elsewhere. That's pretty clear. They have options. They're going to they're going to invest where it costs less. Places like Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, and you know Venezuela if they let them. <laughs> but but they're going to they're going to look for other places. Maybe even Iran, Chris. So so this has a lot of national security ramifications as well. But for the Bakken, it means that that will not be as attractive a place to invest as it, as it would otherwise be. And so these big companies can afford to, to shift gears. They can afford to dabble in other areas. I don't blame them for doing that necessarily. But in the meantime, there's still going to be a very high demand for fossil fuels, I, I assure you, trans including transportation fuels. I mean, if not, if we get go to an all-electric car, for example, transportation system, and that we're a long ways off from that obviously happening, but that electricity is going to have to be generated by something other than just wind and solar, as we've learned in Texas, as though we shouldn't have known better in the first place. And so there, there's just... Big companies can do what big companies do. We have to protect the little companies because the diversity of that system that we have in North Dakota is what will provide the reliability that our country is going to need to continue to be prosperous. Well, and not only that, just all that, all that fuel sitting in the ground. I mean, it, according to BP and whatnot, it may not even get out of the ground at, uh, at some point. So I want to play a clip for you. And um, I don't know if you saw it earlier today, but uh, Susan Collins said she is going to vote for Representative Deb Holland to be the Secretary of Interior, which... I'm presuming he's going to put her over the top to be the actual Secretary of Interior. Here's a clip of uh, Senator John Hoven uh, in her confirmation hearing. Given, given your history uh, being at the protest, are you willing to commit to recuse yourself uh, from the uh, matters that come before Interior related to the Dakota Access Pipeline in order to avoid any conflict of interest? Senator, it's my understanding that there are attorneys at the Department of the Interior, if I, and also ethics uh, folks. Uh, if I am confirmed, uh, of course, I will uh, heed the advice of those attorneys and the ethics office uh, for any issues where there might be any, um, any of those conflicts. Your reaction, Senator? tough questions is one of the first skills you learn when you've been nominated for a cabinet post. And that's exactly what she did. Chris, it, it is personally a, sort of appalling to me that anybody that's asked as direct a question as Senator Hoven asked of her with very direct experience that, that, that you know, that she, she has had, she was at the DAPL protests 
feeding DAPL protesters, facilitating this protest against a, a legally permitted pipeline. And for her to not be able to recuse herself based, based on a conflict of interest without consulting lawyers and then taking the lawyer's advice, that tells you that her own ethics should be in question. I don't have to ask a lawyer if something's ethical or unethical. You know, you, you ask a lawyer if you want to breach ethics, a lawyer can tell you how to get by with, with it, but they shouldn't have to tell you, you know, they shouldn't have to be your conscience. It was deeply disappointing. For me, That's an, that makes her a no vote for sure with me. With yeah. regard to, to Senator Collins uh, agreeing to vote for her, first of all, it, it appears that no Democrat is going to oppose her, including Joe Manchin, which is, he's sort of the go-to energy Democrat, um, which means she was going to be confirmed anyway. However, I did talk to Senator Collins today. I expressed my uh, concern. Uh, I expressed my disappointment. And, um, you know, she doesn't have the, the big federal lands issues that we have in North Dakota, of course, and she has really no federal lands other than a national park. She has tribes that strongly support um, uh, Representative Helen for, for this position. They're very proud of the fact that there's a, a Native American that could be the, the first one to ever serve in a cabinet post, all of those things. And so she feels compelled on behalf of her constituents to vote for her. Um, but that said, I said, yeah, but what are they going to say when she embarrasses them with her lack of knowledge? Um, so they're hoping for a good second, you know, in yeah. command. Senator, we just lost your... Uh I see that. I don't see you either anymore. Huh. Well, if uh, your team can figure it out real quick, I just wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, about your hearings that you had. I think it was today with some of the EPA people. Um, if you want to just do it auditorily, we can do that. But um, I'm happy to do it without the video if that if that works for you. Um, Here, we got you. Well, there we are back. So what, what I would... So the clip, I was going to say you could just play the clip because it pretty well speaks for itself. So so I had the opportunity in the Environment and Public Works Committee today to cross-examine, as they say in the courtroom, um, two nominees that are very important to North Dakota. One is uh, uh, Ms. Mallory, I think her first name is Brenda Mallory, uh, for the position of the director of the CEQ, the Council of Environmental Quality. It's an advisory position, uh, largely answers directly to the White House. The other one being the um, deputy secretary or de deputy administrator for the Environment and Protection, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and that's Janet McCabe. And we know Janet McCabe very well in North Dakota because she was the head of the air quality division of EPA when the Clean Power Plan um, was you know, passed and, and was came out of the uh, uh, Obama administration and, of course, successfully litigated by 26 states, including North Dakota. And North Dakota was most egregiously treated by the Clean Power Plan because they pulled a bait and switch, which was the very definition of arbitrary and capricious. You might recall, and a lot of North Dakotans in the utility industry recall, that when Obama's Clean Power Plan came out, the proposed rule proposed a, an 11% reduction in CO2 emissions in North Dakota. And, and then kicks in the comment period. Well, North Dakota utilities and 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 uh, coal industry felt like you know eleven percent was a doable uh, amount. Um, we've done you know as well or far better than that even with other things like socks and knocks and mercury and particulate matter. And so 
they didn't really oppose the 11%. They set out to figure out how to reduce it by 11%. And in the meantime, the comment period ended and they came out with the final rule and it was a 45% reduction, which was the very definition of arbitrary and capricious. I confronted her on this and I said, I don't know how I can vote for you knowing that you promised in 2014 you were going to consult states and then you pulled this bait and switch on us. And I gave her two minutes to answer and she didn't answer it very well quite honestly she yes. she did state that she was um i see i'm frozen again but she did state that she um she offered a lot of um flexibility to states which isn't even true chris yeah. they prescribed the solutions they went outside of the fence line which is sort of technical speak in, in the utility business but anyway um i was dissatisfied with her answer and um her and i will have another conversation but it's hard for me to imagine that I'll be able to vote for her. Just because of the tech issues that we're facing, there's just two quick questions. One is, do you see a future for Coal Creek Station in North Dakota? Do you see a future for Coal Creek Station? Coal Creek Station proved its value during yes. you know, you know, a couple of weeks ago when, when everybody was having to curtail their gas and there wasn't enough, you know, the wind doesn't blow when it's 20, 30 below. They learned that in Minnesota. Yep. But here it was pumping out 1,100 megawatts because it could and had to to keep the lights on in Minnesota during this very cold time frame when when I was I actually had my my energy my electricity was curtailed or or, or blacked out for 45 minutes because I am on a different co-op than than uh, than the the GRE folks in Minnesota and my co-op is a member of the Southwest Power Pool and so they were they were blacking out in North Dakota to cover for Texas. Um, so I think Coal Creek, Creek Station has proven its value in the marketplace, why it's important to have 1,100 megawatts that you can count on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think that increases its likelihood um, of, of being sold to somebody, whether it's a merchant or somebody else. And I'm, I won't go into a lot of details about what I may or may not know, um, but I do think there's a, I, I hope. <laughs> do you want to say know, that one more time, please? Well, frankly, I, what I think, if I was right now, if I was a member of, a, of the Great River Energy Co-op in Minnesota, I'd be, I'd be begging the leadership at GRE to reconsider. All right, last question, sir. Um, have you been briefed on the attack against the Iranian militia in Syria? And if so, do you support President Biden's strike? So it's a really important question. I've not been briefed on it. I, I am pleased with the strike, quite honestly. And I was actually a little bit surprised. Why? 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 Be Go ahead. Be because because Iran, the, the, it's really important, particularly at a time when we're considering we the Biden administration is, you know, wants to get back into the Iran nuclear deal and you know, lift the sanctions and all those things that, that Iran understands that it cannot just bomb with impunity or use its its surrogates to do the same. And it was, I think it was an important message for the president to send that, okay, you're a bad actor. We're not, I'm not going to give you a second chance. I really thought he would. Now the concern of course is an escalation of things and, and but I do think it raises one more time, though, this other broader policy question. That is, when do you consult Congress on and yes. in, in, in the War Powers Act? And um, I've been really pleased with some of my Democratic friends, particularly uh, Senator Kane, Tim Kane, who I consider a very good friend, by the way, and, and brother, um, who's raising the question, you know, just because the administration or the party changes doesn't mean that we can just continue to um, – you know, the presidents can't just continue to bomb our even our adversaries without yeah. coming back to Congress. So I think it does spark that discussion again, and it's an appropriate one. 
I want to let you go, Senator, but I think it's interesting here because what, what I didn't know, and I was doing some research on this, obviously, because I don't see why to have a strike in Syria. And yet I didn't realize that there was actually this was the third fatality in rock, rocket strikes in recent weeks. So there's been other rocket been. strikes. Yeah. In Iraq. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's interesting, Chris, I might just expound on that a little. I've been to Iraq and, and I've seen um, some of these rocket strikes. In fact, there was a rocket strike the day before I got there. And what happens is these are rather random. They're not very well executed many times. Thank goodness they're not well executed. And um, there you probably, are you getting a view of a, a broader view of my set here? Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, it's, 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 they're, they're not very good at it. And, um, and yet occasionally they make a, they make a hit, you know, you can fire a, you know, you can fire a rocket uh, or a, a bottle rocket and hurt somebody. And so, it wasn't a it was an appropriate response to attacks on the United States until such time as we can have a broader discussion about what to do. All right. Senator, thanks so much for the time. We we appreciate it. This is more than maybe you anticipated, but always a great discussion with you. So thank you, sir. I'm always glad to do it. We'll get these kinks worked out. We'll we'll be better next time. <laughs> it was it was always great. So thank you and to keep up the great work. All right. Thanks, Chris.